there's really a community that's built within the home setting. Um, and again, there, you know, it feels more comfortable. It doesn't feel like I'm being sent to, a, you know, a faraway place or like you said, kind of like a beyond scared straight yeah. moment. Um, so we really want to make it feel comforted um, and help our parents know that you're placing your kid in an environment that is safe and caring and comforting. Welcome to the Sandstone Care Podcast, where we help teens, young adults, and their families overcome the challenges that come with substance use, addiction, and mental health conditions. Welcome to the Sandstone Care Podcast with me, Clem Malley. Today, I'm joined by Sahar Wahid, who is our lead nurse at the Chesapeake location in Maryland for teen residential treatment, and Adrian Washington, who is our program director also at the Chesapeake location in Maryland for teen rehab. And that's what we're talking about today. We're talking all about teen rehab. A lot of people don't even know it's a thing. So we're gonna clear up some misconceptions and get some really important questions answered. So first of all, uh, Sahar and Adrian, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us, Clint. So first, let's define what an RTC program is. So Adrian, could you tell me what is an RTC program? Yeah, um, RTC just stands for Residential Treatment Center. Um, so a residential treatment center is a location where the clients are in full inpatient care. Um, so you can think of it like a, not a hospital, but just a little bit under there. So um, there's nursing there, staff there at all times that, to support the client's needs, but they have a little more freedom than they would in a hospital setting. So that word residential, like how does that differentiate from the hospital mm -hmm. environment? Mm -hmm. um, in a residential setting, um, we're looking a lot longer than we would in a hospital stay. So a hospital stay is just um, there to stabilize you and then kind of support you into the next moves, which is usually an RTC. Um, at that RTC level, we're more integrated, meaning that you're staying there 24-7, you're involved in the treatment at all times, um, you're also get, receiving 24-hour nursing. There's 24-hour staffing there. Um, so there's always supervision there. But um, in a hospital setting, there's a lot more um, acuity rules and acuity limitations um, for safety needs, um, which we do have in a residential setting. But there's a lot more um, that we're able to do in a residential setting, meaning that we're able to have some freedoms in the way the kids are able to express themselves. Some of the privileges that they're able to have um, are a lot different than um, in a hospital setting where we're looking just to observe you and stabilize you. Um, here, we're really looking at you to learn the skills to help you stabilize yourself. Yeah. And Sahar, so residential treatment centers have been around for a little bit, right? Like we've, they've, they've been around for a couple of years at least. Um, I'm not sure. First of all, how long have residential treatment centers been around? Is that a is that a thing that they've been around for a while? It, it has. It's been around for a while. Um, I think over the course of the years, the, the settings have changed and, and the classifications have changed um, and permitting and licensure and things like that change um, along with the times. Uh, however, the way Sandstone Care approaches residential treatment is um, slightly different and it goes a little bit against the grain, which makes it, in my opinion, more effective. So let's dive into that a little bit. People do residential treatment because it works, right? So um, Sahar, could you tell me why does residential treatment work? 
Yeah, sure. Um, so in residential treatment, we're really able to identify triggers and work on that impulse control. And the 24-hour setting gives you the structure to be able to do that. Um, we can work on teaching coping skills and employing those during their stay with us. Um, our length of stay is 45 to 60 days, which studies have shown is, is the most um, effective. Um, so that's sort of how we do things at Chesapeake. Got it. And so can you guys tell me a little bit about how many teens are actually in rehab for uh, drug abuse? Is that because I think a lot of people have a conception that or a misconception that that's not a thing, <laughs> that there's no teens who are actually in need of this. So how many teens are in rehab because of drug abuse? Mm -hmm. um, I would say there's always um, a large spectrum, but when we look about the clientele that we serve um, and even looking about um, kind of how we quickly built um, the clientele, it tells us that the services are needed. Um, we, in our current facility, hold um, 12 12 clients um, at a time, and the additional facility will hold another 11 clients. Um, and all of those beds are slated right now to have clients in them. So that tells us that there is a service that is really needed, um, especially with um, the way that the drug culture has changed, especially for um, teens and the way they're able to access those, those things. Um, and the normal the normalization of marijuana and how they're you and social media, how they're using all of those things to attain drugs. Um, there really is a large service for it. Um, and we see that from the needs and how many people we contact um, through the for request of service. Um, so it definitely is a thing and it's a growing thing um, because we need to really um, look at the mental health. All substance abuse leads back to mental health. Um, so there's a reason that they started to abuse that substance and that's what we're really looking at. Um, of course, we want to provide a safe environment where they're able to take themselves off of those medications and be in a, um, in a safe place. But um, it's really focusing back to the mental health. So a lot of times, traditionally, when you hear an RTC, you think it's just a mental health service. Um, and I think from media, people probably think like it's a psych ward and it's really structured, but it's, it's not that. Um, RTCs have come a really long way and there's a lot of great programs out there. Um, and, and this facility is able to meet a dual diagnosis of both of those, um, that substance abuse and the mental health. Right. And so what you're saying is we need to have we need to have treatment for both the mental health and the substance abuse part. And oftentimes, if you treat one or the other, then you're not getting to the underlying um, reason why someone might be abusing drugs. Right. Yeah. And. I think another part of this is that we want it to feel like a home, right? This is not like the Maury show where we're looking for the drill sergeant to kind of whip our kid into shape. Right. This is about being able to address the actual like concerns and anxieties and fears that are going on within these teens. So can you speak about how how is the res residential part of the treatment, mm -hmm. the home-like part of the treatment important? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so one, what helps that is that we're actually in a home environment um, for Sandstone's RTCs. Um, so there is that feeling of it being an environment. Um, I think what adds to that is that the fact of, one, there's 24-hour nursing and there's 24-hour staff. So you see the same people all the time. You're able to build relationships with the staff. And it's not like, again, in a hospital setting where somebody 
he's just coming to observe and, you know, check in, make sure you're okay, and then kind of leave that environment. You're with that person um, multiple times of the day. Staff often eats meals with them. We often eat the same food as they do. Um, and then we have, you know, off-grounds and experiential activities that staff's included in. Or it just might be something as simple as game night or karaoke night that you're having with, with the staff. And, and sometimes, you know, the therapy and the clinical team that it's included in that too. So there is that environment. And then there is the community that's grown with, between the clients. Because they spend so much time together, they're able to really um, hone into each other and support each other. I think one of the coolest things that we can see is when kids co-rep co-regulate together and they're able to really um, bring one one another down and like we might just be on the side watching the process because that kid is hey I did this is this has really helped me how about we try and work through this together so there's really a community that's built within the home setting um, and again there you know it feels more comfortable it doesn't feel like I'm being sent to a, you know a far away place or like you said kind of like a beyond scared street yeah. moment um, so we really want to make it feel comfortable comfort it um, and help our parents know that you're placing your kid in an environment that is safe and caring and comforting. Yeah. Yeah. Sahar, let's talk about that safe and caring part a little bit. Sure. So I think some parents are hesitant when thinking about sending their child to a residential treatment center because they're thinking, well, my kid's not that bad. What if they're going to be interacting with kids who have actually really done some stuff or who are into some hard drugs. Like my kid's just struggling with marijuana. He's not struggling with heroin. I don't want to send him to a center in which then he's inter interacting with all of these people. So, you know, what can you say about that kind of environment and how it is a safe environment despite, you know, the misconceptions that people might have? Yeah, typically we do hear that from parents. And, and we also have to recognize that some things go underreported from the clients themselves. Um, so typically when they do come into care, we find a lot more substance use than the parents even know about. Um, so, you know, parents tend to sometimes minimize things. They want to believe the best in their child. They want to believe that everything they're saying is true. And I totally understand that perspective. And, and it's a valid perspective to have as a parent. Um, but leaving the work to the professionals um, is usually the best way to go. Uh, and when we truly delve deep in there, and once we get the buy-in from the client, and they start opening up in group, and we start engaging in those family therapy sessions, um, and we sort of peel away the layers of what's really going on, um, whether a client is dabbling in fentanyl, marijuana or alcohol, um, that underlying diagnosis is the same. The substance use is substance use, and the mental health aspect is, is usually there with that. Um, and that's what we're there to do. Yeah. And so when we're thinking about this, they're going to have groups of friends outside of, outside of uh, the residential treatment center, right? And so they need to start building up the good habits of being able to meet people who are also trying to get sober, right? And so if you take away that group aspect, if you take away the ability for them to make friends and interact with other people who are on a similar journey, then you're limiting post-treatment um, center their ability to be able to connect with people who have a similar struggle, right? Is that an important part to connect with, 
you know, a community of people who are also in recovery in this journey? Definitely. Um, sobriety journeys and recovery journeys are all about community. Um, it's about being around people that, you know, are experiencing the same thing, but also are trying to uh, work to the same goal of sobriety. Um, so people that kind of go cold turkey or do the on uh, their recovery journey on their own are often not successful because you need those people. Um, you're going to have to continue to learn to use skills. You're going to have to learn to say no in places where you would usually say yes. Um, there's going to be moments where you're triggered and, you know, my my normal thing is to use something, but I can't do that. Um, let me call, you know, in an AA setting, call your sponsored. And that's kind of the basis of a lot of recovery models is that community and that camaraderie. And you're right. Clients definitely have to learn to make those decisions about who they want to be with and who they do not. Um, and I know family aspects, a lot of times you the nature is to want to protect your kid from being around those things. Um, but they have to develop those skills because the parents won't always be there. That's going to become that client's own journey. And they have to make those decisions on their own um, to learn to say no. Um, so and in addition to that, in our setting, it's uh, we don't allow any glorification of drugs or anything like that. Um, if those conversations do come up, they definitely do come up. We have to have the conversation like, hey, I'm really craving some marijuana today. Okay, why are you craving some marijuana today? Because I'm stressed out. Or another kid said, like, I really want some cocaine today. Like, I'm really having vivid flashbacks. Okay, let's talk about that. Um, and that happens in a therapeutic setting. So outside of a therapeutic setting, we don't allow any glorification of drugs or storytelling because we realize that that's not supportive. But if we're doing it in a supportive environment where we're really able to work through that. Um, and sometimes the kids who might only be, you know, only smoking uh, marijuana, quote unquote, could really connect with the kid that might be using cocaine because the purpose, the purpose of their use is the same, um, even though the substance of choice is different. I love how you drew the connection between the two. It's so important. And so we understand, okay, this is like a family-like environment. We're trying to create this home, but also you guys are pros. You are real professionals. You have letters around your name, right? <laughs> and you did a lot of hard work to be able to get where you're at. You know, so what accreditation do residential treatment centers um, need to have in order to be able to accept teens? Mm -hmm. A lot of accreditation. Oh, a lot. It's a lot of work. <laughs> a lot of work. Um, and state by state is definitely different. Um, but we always come back to our joint commission and our JCO accreditations because those are standards across um, the country that we have to meet. Um, and then every state has their own accreditations um, and um, standards that they need to meet. Um, so for an RTC setting, it goes back to some of those things, um, again, that makes us different from a hospital than an RTC setting. So one, we're providing the 24-hour nursing, which a hospital can do as well. We're providing 24-hour staffing, which a hospital can do as well. But there are other things like weekly therapy sessions, weekly family therapy sessions that we're meeting. Um, there's amount of clinical hours that we're meeting. So um, our kiddos have 25 hours a week of group therapy additional to their um, individual uh, session and their family session. Um, there's schooling hours that we have to meet because if they're out of school for a significant amount of time. We don't want them to get back in, uh, 
behind or a lot of them are already behind. Um, so there's three hours a day of schooling that we have to meet. So there's a lot of requirements even to the times that we have meals, um, the amount of fitness that we um, accommodate for them. Um, so there's a lot of requirements that we have to meet in the state of Maryland. Um, however, that, you know, make sure that we're providing quality care. Um, and it's a really great feeling when we're talking to maybe an insurance company and they're like, well, this kid can go here. And we're like, no, let me tell you why Stanstone is different and the standards that we have that we meet um, and why not that we're better than the other facility, but we're able to provide more needs um, for that kiddo than maybe another facility can. Yeah. And there's a reason why people are coming from all around the United States. Mm -hmm. We have residential treatment centers in Colorado and in Maryland, and people are coming from all around the United States, mm -hmm. one, because there's a huge need, mm -hmm. but two, because there's not a lot of places that offer that type of care for this type of demographic, mm -hmm. right, for teens. Mm -hmm. And so there's just this huge need. And so you kind of touched on this, but how do teen rehabs also continue schooling? Because mm -hmm. I know a lot of parents are thinking, I don't want to interrupt my kid from their mm -hmm. school. They still need a degree, <laughs> right? Like right. you still want to uh, help them advance. So how how does uh, how do teen re rehabs continue schooling? Right. Um, so on staff we have a licensed teacher. Um, so once a kiddo comes in, we um, request a release of information for their school. Um, so we contact schools, let them know that they are in a residential setting um, and they would not be in school for this uh, length of time. Um, and then our teacher has direct communication, whether it's their case manager or their principal or whomever is going to provide that information. Um, and she works directly with them to make sure that they're staying on target um, in school. And a lot of kids need to catch up because, honestly, to get to a residential life, um, you've had some other life going on before that, and school might have not been the priority. So we're there. Um, we provide three hours a day of schooling, so two hours in the middle of the day and then additional homework hour. Um, and we have contact with school throughout that whole time um, to make sure. Um, and then we've had kids that are even getting ready to graduate, so we We've helped them with their like capstone projects that they've needed to complete or applications, scholarships, um, things of that nature. So school is definitely still a priority. Um, every state is different. In the Maryland um, area, it's called the Home and Hospital Act, which kind of says that the kid is on extended sick leave. And there's some paperwork that we do on our end to support that they're out of school. Um, and it is for a mental health need that is the prime primary concern for the kid at the, the time, but school is still very important and that we want them to be working towards a positive goal. Right. And so there may never be a, a best time to go to teen rehab, mm -hmm. right? But at the same time, you can rest assured that if you're, if you're sending your child to teen rehab or if you're going to rehab as a teen, that you're still going to be able to advance your, your school life, right? Mm -hmm. And so, Sahar, you know, can you just walk me through what does a typical day look like for a teen in rehab? Yeah, totally. Um, so we've been talking about this 24-hour structured setting a lot, and I'd be happy to walk you through it. Um, we do wake-ups around 6.30 in the morning. At 6.30 in the morning, the kids perform hygiene. So um, hygiene also, or lack thereof, is directly linked to depression. Uh, so it is something that we focus on. Um, you cannot wear the same clothes that you had worn yesterday. We make sure, you know, deodorant's applied, teeth are brushed, hair is brushed. Um, um, obviously, those that need to shower that didn't shower the night before will accomplish that. And um, staff is there to give prompts if necessary, give redirections if necessary. Uh, beds are made, rooms are cleaned, and then we do breakfast. And to kind of loop back to something you mentioned earlier about the comfort of home, um, it just popped in my head that 
the clients start to feel so comfortable uh, that, you know, one morning I made French toast and uh, the smell of like cinnamon and French toast was all throughout the house. And a client woke up and walked down the hall and just said, oh my goodness, my dad always makes French toast on Sunday mornings. Like this just feels like I just feel so comfortable right now. I can't even explain it. And like getting that feedback and hearing that from the client that is going through a really rough journey and trying to balance a lot of things is just a testament to how this program is able to balance nutrition and sleep and fitness and school and still prioritize that substance abuse and mental health um, is really awesome to see. Um, so as the program director, Adrian has facilitated a really um, structured but um, dynamic program so that all those needs are met. Um, so they go through the, the breakfast routine and then um, everyone gets assessed by the nurse first thing in the morning. They attend morning group with one of Adrian's clinicians and um, she has an awesome, fantastic team of clinicians that she failed to mention. We offer clinical services seven days a week, which goes above and beyond the, the Maryland regulations. So, uh, so that also sets our program aside from other programs. Uh, so clinicians are on site seven days a week. We do morning medications. Uh, our team is able to do meds management since we have a medical provider on site. So anybody that has routine medications uh, will obtain their morning medications. And then they sort of go throughout the routine throughout the day, um, morning group into lunch, into afternoon group and school and homework hour, um, fitness, dinner. And then there's another group uh, in the evening. We wind down uh, the evening before bedtime with something called wind down time. And wind down time is a, a period of time where the clients are to meditate, reflect, journal, listen to music, utilize whatever coping skill they, they employ with their clinician, and sort of just reflect on the day. You know, group can get really heavy. Uh, they're dealing with some pretty, pretty heavy stuff. And that time is to just break that down, process it, and start... Um, lessening the, stimu the stimulation to get ready for bed. And uh, so that's sort of what the normal routine looks like on a weekday. On the weekends, there's experiential activities and the clients can, you know, enjoy the beautiful nature that, that Maryland has to offer. We have some awesome parks that we go to. We go hiking uh, to the beach. Uh, the clients, uh, when they uh, reach a certain goal, are able to select an outing. And as long as it's appropriate and safe, uh, and approved by Adrian, uh, that's a cool incentive for the clients as well. Yeah, and so we have centers in Colorado too, so they can go hiking in the mountains. Yeah. Sometimes there's like mini golf or, you know, um, frisbee and like all kinds of really just cool, fun things for these kids to do, um, not only at the house, but also on these outings. So very, very cool. All right, so um, what else, like final thoughts, what do you want parents to know about Imagine there is a parent on the other side of this. What do you want parents to know from you guys about teen rehab? If there's one thing you could tell them, we'll start with Adrian. Um, I think this goes back to something Sahar said earlier is um, just kind of allow and trust the process. Um, I know it's really scary oftentimes to put your child in a residential facility. And like I said, um, to get to this level of care, you've definitely experienced some other things that were really scary with your kid. Um, so I definitely understand there's a heightened anxiety, um, but kind of trust the process um, and allow us as 
clinicians, as a nursing team, as trained professionals to really support your kid. Our best intent is to help your kid and help your family. Um, and if we all work together as a team, um, you'll be thankful that you were able to have this experience and your kid was able to have this experience as well. Yeah, and you know, this reminds me of what Sahar said. You guys are learning new skills during the day and practicing those skills in the evening. And so sometimes when you are as a parent, you're working, you don't have the time to both teach and then to also monitor and mm -hmm. also to help out. And so yeah. it's great to be able to lean on uh, professionals for support with that. Sahar, what do you want parents to know? Huh, what do I want parents to know? I think the most important thing for me comes back down to one of Sandstone Care's core values, and that's passion. And we've worked really, really hard to develop a team of people that are truly passionate about what they do. And I want parents to know that their kids are in good hands. Um, that's our top priority. That's what we do. We live, eat, and breathe our jobs, and we take it very seriously. And um, so anybody who walks through that door is very well taken care of. Their needs are going to be met at all times and uh, with as much attentiveness as possible. Awesome. Well, listeners, watchers, you will see links for our uh, both locations for Colorado and for our Chesapeake, Maryland location in the show notes. Um, check it out. You're going to see these awesome people that I've been talking to, this dynamic duo of Adrian and Sahar. Uh, incredible people. I've been able to spend the weekend with them. Or This hasn't been a weekend, but it's felt like it a felt weekend. Like, like a weekend. <laughs> it felt like a weekend because <laughs> the, the hours we were putting in. Uh, but super amazing human beings. And uh, thank you guys so much for being on the show. Yeah, of course. Thanks for thank having you. us. Thank you. All right. We will see you on the next episode. If you want to learn more about treatment options for you, your teen, or young adult, then tell us about your situation on a confidential call using the number in the show notes or live chat with us at sandstonecare.com. We'll connect you with the treatment that you need. And if we're not the right fit, we'll get you where you need to go. Be well and remember that change is possible.